Okay, you can go ahead and turn to Jeremiah 29. As you do so, let me pray for us. Father, we praise you for all the great things you have done in our lives. In fact, we wish we could list them all one by one. You've been so great and so good, though, it would be impossible for us, limited creatures, to name them all. Help us to try. Help us to, to praise your holy name for all of your goodness, for all of your benefits, and help us not to forget them. And grant us, O Lord, to know more of you as we come to your word this morning. Speak to us. Speak directly to us by your spirit. Address our hearts. Address our minds. Lord, help us to conform to your will and your rule in our lives. Right this very morning, let us die to ourselves. Let us live to you. Work this in us, we pray, this resurrection by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we began a new sermon series called Bless the Block. The goal of the series is to develop a systematic, long-term blueprint for flourishing. For the flourishing of the church and the flourishing of our community. In last week's sermon, we focused on the fact that the Christian church, as James said a moment ago, is an exile community, all of us. Exiles are people who live where they don't want to live. They've been sent there, in this case, by God to a place that is not their home, that is not their culture, to a people who may not be their people. And according to Hebrews 11, verse 13, all Christians are strangers and exiles on the earth. And and just as with Israel in the Old Testament, God has sent the New Testament church then into exile on, on the whole planet. So there's never a place, if you're a Christian, where you should feel like you've reached your home. Earth is not home. And we must then, therefore, embrace our exile identity and embrace the place of our exile. And to do this, we were saying last week, we have to make three mind shifts. We have to rethink our locations. We have to redefine success, not as getting out of the neighborhood, but as coming back to the neighborhood. And we have to ask the where question of God and genuinely let him make the decision for us. Because as exiles, the one thing we don't get to decide is where. It's counterintuitive, but it's in exile where we flourish. Exile is hard, don't get me wrong. But that's the condition and the place that God uses to bring us back to himself in a kind of revival. And it's the place and the condition God uses to teach us to find our security. Not in earthly homes, but in him. In other words, it's in exile that God rids us of idols and purifies our faith. So for us, then, exile is both an identity 
and the location. And in that exile, there is the combination then of vulnerability and flourishing. God sends us into vulnerability so that we then may flourish and bless others with flourishing. So as the exile church flourishes, so the exile community should flourish. Now for that flourishing to happen, we must also have resilience. What we have in Jeremiah 29 verses 5 to 11 are seven commands from God to his exile people that build resilience and promote flourishing. And that's why I'm suggesting that we adopt these seven things as our blueprint for our ministry to our neighborhood. This is how we bless the block. Today, we want to focus on two of those commands in verse 5 and think about how it is we pursue these things in our time for the flourishing of a church and of the community. If you're taking notes this morning, I want to hang our thoughts on on two basic uh, commands here from verse 5. Build houses and live in them and plant gardens and eat their produce. Build houses and live in them plant gardens, and eat their produce. Look with me in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 to 11. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Verse 5 again. Build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. You're sort of boiling this sermon into one main point. It might be something like this. The exiled church must become Residents, owners, and producers to become a blessing to the block. We, live, we bless the block by living and producing on the block. So let's take that first command there in verse 5. Imagine for a moment that you were part of a conquered people. Your whole nation was sacked by an enemy nation. You were captured along with thousands and thousands of other fellow countrymen and women. And you are taken into the land of your enemy. 
made to walk across hill and through valley and through desert, a long journey to your enemy's capital city. You get there, you don't recognize the language that people speak. Their clothing is different. You can't figure out what's important in this new place. You seem always to be misunderstanding people, and people seem always to be misunderstanding you. You arrive basically with the clothes on your back, tattered and torn from the long journey. Don't know when the last time you've had a decent bath. What's your immediate need? We're probably pretty low on Maslow's hierarchy. Probably the first thing that you're wondering is what we going to eat. I mean, that's me most mornings. Not to mention exile. What we going to eat and where we going to live. And it's interesting that that's the first thing that God speaks to his exiled people. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their food produce, the first command, build houses and live in them. The Hebrew here is interesting. It means build houses and live in them. Sometimes the best way to answer your need is to answer your need. We often think of exiles as homeless simply because they are not in their homeland. But homeland and home, homeland and house are two different things. You can have a house in a foreign land. This is what God commands. He commands the exiles to build houses and to live in them, even though they are captives in a foreign place. Now, this command, build houses and live in them, means at least three or four things. Number one, they are not to postpone settling down. They cannot live out of a suitcase for 70 years. And got no suitcase. They got to start rooting themselves. Number two, they are to root then their residential and social lives in the community of exile. Live in them. Be present there. And they're not to be absentee landlords. This is not an investment property. This is a personal property. And in it all, we, it means then that God intends to meet their needs while they're in exile. And the temptation is to think that the place of exile is the place of, of want, is the place of lack, is the place of struggle. But if God's your God, and God has promised to supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory, wherever you are, God is there as your provider. That's especially true in exile. So he says there, build houses and live in them in Babylon, in this foreign place that doesn't feel very Jewish, that isn't pro-Israelite, that isn't got any special plans and programs to help you get established as as a sort of exile community. Root yourself there, for God is going to be with him. Now, the question becomes, is there anything unique about building houses and living in them as exiles? Does the exile identity and the exile condition have anything to teach us about home ownership? Again, maybe three or four things. Number one, 
exiles build houses as a need, not a financial investment. This wasn't about sort of renovating dilapidated homes and flipping properties and making a quick dollar. This was about the meeting of an actual basic um, urgent need, a place to live. Number two, exiles build houses, again, as a place to live, but not as their permanent home. It's a temporary So the exile does not set their hearts on always being in Babylon. The exile does not set their hearts on their property. We read it a moment ago in Hebrews 11, verses 8 to 10, where Abraham is in the promised land, even in the promised land, living in tents. Because he knew he was looking for a better country. How much more so the exiles who go into these lands that God sends us into, we build houses and we live in them, but not as though we're making our home on the earth. It's people who have a home elsewhere. And so for the exile, number three, to build a house is a blessing, but it's not the blessing. It's not the blessing. Our houses are not our hope. Our houses are commercials for the permanent home that we're looking forward to. Our houses are sort of dim reflections of that promise that Jesus made us in John chapter 14, that he's going to prepare a place for us, that in his father's house there are many mansions. Some people read that and say, oh, I ought to have a mini mansion, an M-I-N-I mansion. There's a place for all of us in glory, in the Father's house, which is truly our home. Not the places we build here. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I actually want to suggest to you that that the message of Christianity is that you cannot be homeless, but actually have a home with God in his household, in his kingdom. And what that requires then is you you have to stop loving this world in such a way that you put your hope in it. But you have to love God in such a way that you turn away from this world and put your hope in him. And the hope for security and the hope for uh, forgiveness and the hope for righteousness is not acquired by buying properties and amassing wealth on this earth. It is acquired by turning from those things and putting your faith in Jesus who died for you to suffer the judgment of God that you and I deserve and who was raised from the grave so that you might have new and eternal life. And that life The destination of that life is home with God in glory. That's what God offers you this morning. Accept that offer gladly in faith. So the exile builds a house as a blessing, but not as the blessing. And exiles build houses and live in the houses as if it's not theirs. Here I'm just applying the principle of 1 Corinthians 7, verses 29 to 31. Paul in that context is talking about marriages and relationships, and he says an odd sort of thing. He says, in view of the time, that the time is short, those of you who are married should live in marriage as if you were not in marriage. And what does he mean? Well, he ain't talking about swinging and all that kind of stuff. 
No, what he, what he means there is, is that the human institution of marriage is temporary. The coming of eternity is close. So live in the marriage, not like your hope and your life depends upon your earthly spouse, but like your, the bridegroom is coming. And the same is true of houses. Live in your house. Enjoy it. Settle down as an exile. Have a presence there residentially and socially, but don't own it as if it's your hope. Own it as if it's about to be burned up. Because it is when Christ comes in his glory. And so look to Christ. Place your hope there. In other words, Jeremiah 29 is not an exile's encouragement to pursue the American dream. Well, the Babylonian dream, America, Babylon, same thing. (laughs) It's God's prescription for causing his people to flourish and in their flourishing to bless the land of their exile. So with this first command, let me just put a pin in this final thought on this first command. The best way to address housing insecurity is home ownership. This text makes home ownership the business of the exile community while in exile. Makes it the business of the church. We'll come back to that in a moment. Notice the second command. It says, plant gardens and eat their produce. Plant gardens and eat their produce. This is an interesting command because Babylon is known for its gardens. Anybody ever heard of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the world. Nebuchadnezzar built his capital city into one of the most luxurious places in the known earth at the time. And the hanging gardens were a a legendary sign of the city's wealth and leisure. Apparently, they built these gardens not functionally to sort of eat from them, but they built these gardens really to just enjoy as as an act of pleasure. But notice now, in their exile, God's people, it's as if he's taking them back to the Garden of Eden. The hostile environment of Babylon is is being subdued and cultivated, just as Adam was to do in the garden. They're not simply uh, to be consumers at the market. They, They probably don't even have enough money to do that. If they rely on the food production of the Babylonians, they're they're going to starve or have terrible diets or or be at the whim of the Babylonians. So they they have to be producers, and what they produce, they have to eat. Now, working with their own hands and literally planting their own foods helps ensure that the exiles depend on man and not on God. It helps ensure that the exiles use their own human capital to secure their livelihood and future. It is not God's plan to make his people dependent upon others, even in the worst conditions of exile. It is God's plan to show the world how much better it is to be dependent on him. It is God's plan to show the world how much more fruitful life can be and is, even in the most hostile circumstances, when God is our hope and our refuge. One commentator likens this situation of, uh, to sort of the, the city of God versus the city of man. 
And that in sending his people into exile in Babylon, God is establishing the city of God right in the midst of the city of man with all of its hostility toward the people of God. In order that that city inside the city might bear testimony to the grace and the goodness and the lavishness of life with God. So by their own hands, the exiles were to provide for their food needs. So not only is housing on the agenda of the exile community, but also food production is a critical part of how God's exile people will bless the land of their exile. So I said there were seven things in this blueprint from Jeremiah 29. Those are the first two. Build houses and live in them. And number two, plant gardens and eat from them. Let me make an observation about flourishing. The fact that God issues this command teaches us a few things about the nature of flourishing, of living the abundant life that God gives to his people. Number one, flourishing does not require freedom. Flourishing does not require freedom. And this is vital for people who are struggling with the notions of injustice and the lack of freedom to grasp, particularly the people of God. That our flourishing does not depend upon the cooperation of our captors. Our flourishing does not depend upon the escape of us from the place of our captivity. We may flourish right where God plants us. That's the second thing. Flourishing does not require financial independence. It may produce financial independence. But we may begin to flourish long before we have any money. We have tremendous examples of this from African-American history and, and the history of the black church. Some of you have, may have read the recently published book by Zora Neale Hurston called Barracoon. If you haven't, I highly commend it to you. It's subtitled The Story of the Last Black Cargo. It's the history of the very last shipment of Africans from West Africa to be enslaved in the New World. It's actually an illegal shipment that happens 50 years after the slave trade has been outlawed. In 1927, Zora Neale Hurston interviews a man named Kudjo Lewis, the last survivor of a slave ship, the last slave ship called the Clotilda. And one of the topics that she talks with him about is freedom, life following emancipation. Slaves were freed into the U.S. economy without one red cent. But listen to Kuja Lewis's account of what the African-American community there in South Carolina, where he was, did following emancipation. Uh, Hurston was known in her sociology for writing in kind of the dialect uh, of the folk that she interviewed. And this is Kuja Lewis. We glad we free. But then you understand me. We can't stay with the folks what own us no more. Therefore, where are we going to live? We don't know. That's an exile's reflection. 
And after trying to work and save enough money to pay their way back to Africa, that was the original plan, they, they, they see that it's going to cost too much money. So they're stuck in the land of their exile. So they decide to ask their former owner to give them some land so they could build homes. And, and this is what Cujo tells us about that owner's reaction. Captain, jump up on his feet and say, fool, do you think I'm going to give you property on top of property? I took good care of my slaves in slavery, and therefore I don't owe them nothing. You don't belong to me now. Why must I give you my land? So he goes back. Cujo tells Gumpa, that's an older man in the community, call the people together and tell them what Captain Tim say. They say, well, we buy ourselves a piece of land. We work hard and save and eat molasses and bread and buy the land from the mere. They don't take off one five cent from the price for us. But we pay it all and take the land. This is what they did once they owned the land. Cujo says this, therefore, we build houses on the land. We buy after we divide it up. Cujo take one acre and a half for his part. We don't pay nobody to build our houses. We all go together and build a house for one another. So then we get houses. When I think of Jeremiah 29, 5, I can't help but think of this bit of history, this kind of history, and it's not unique to this one story. What happened with Cujo Lewis and the Africans in South Carolina happened all across the country as black people joined together to begin providing for themselves following slavery. They founded black-owned banks, insurance companies, mutual aid societies. They founded schools and universities. And you know what community was at the forefront of all that institution building? The church, black churches, some white churches, Christians who had a sensibility about what it meant to be exiles and what it was required in order to flourish in an exile condition. It requires that people, by God's grace, take in their own hands the responsibility for producing, for building. And this is what we see in our history. Flourishing didn't require long years of freedom or a lot of finances. I, I, my wife and I are working on our finances, trying to get some things straight, get rid of some small foxes and be better stewards. And as we do that, every time we do that and sit down, I, I get a little bit of shame and embarrassed. Because compared to my mom's, who was never married, had eight kids, raised them all by herself, with a job that she started and her hourly wage was about 25 cents an hour when she first started. I'm ashamed at how much she did with so little and how little I do with so much. We know these lessons, beloved. We need to mine these lessons. Flourishing didn't require long years of freedom or a lot of finances. It required resilience and faith cooperation and effort when God commands Israel to build houses and live in them, to plant gardens and eat from them. He is calling Israel and the church to this kind of faith and reliance and this kind of do-somethingness. Which brings us to ARC. Let's bring this issue down to our day and our community because I think we, we need to challenge ourselves a little bit. Many of us tend to think of ourselves as American citizens. That's our main identity. And it's in the way. 
And we tend to think of America as a free land with opportunity. And we forget our exile status and the exile status of many of our neighbors. And we forget that we are exiles. We sometimes overlook the exiles' realities even in our own church. The people here who are naturally and spiritually exiles, immigrants to the country, refugees to the country, looking for a better country in that world to come. And we sometimes fail to realize that resilience then is a community project. It is a community uh, characteristic, not just another form of Americanized rugged individualism. We have to help each other to be strong and keep going. But ask yourself, does today's church have the same needs as the exiles in Babylon? We have the same practical needs for housing and food. And do we have the resilience that they needed? Let me illustrate this. Think about housing and food insecurity in Washington, D.C. Forgive me, I'm about to get a little wonky here, a little policy wonky here. As of 2016, D.C. had the highest per capita rate of homelessness in the country. D.C.'s homeless population increased 34% between 2009 and 2016. And that's probably an undercount. Housing insecurity is worsened by the wide income disparity by race and ward in the city. Uh, This first graph shows you the median income in the city. The median income for for whites overall is $160,000. Per year. I saw numbers of my white brothers and sisters, well, that ain't me. <laughs> so, so don't feel guilty. Like, that ain't me. I don't make that kind of coin. But the median is you take all the salaries, you line them up in order, and you pick the salary in the middle. The average is actually higher. The average is actually uh, closer to two something, 210, I think. The median income is $160,000 in the city. Let me ask you a question. Whose salary or whose median income then do you think the city's cost of living is based on? The the median income for African Americans is $48,000. About one-third of that, if we're doing just a comparison, for comparison's sake, uh, of our our white brothers and sisters, our, our white citizens in the city. But notice that the median income for Ward 7 and 8 have not moved since 2008. While the, while the movement, you can see movement in income in every other ward of the city. Significant improvement. So, so ward seven and eight are the two columns uh, to the far right. This means that the people and the area of our exile, ward eight, where we feel God has sent us and called us to minister, are not participating in the economic opportunities and expansions of the rest of the city. But you already knew that. I'm just showing you graphs for it. And it results, thinking about housing insecurity, it results in a greater rent burden in our neighborhood. And it results in greater food insecurity. So this third graph is a graph of rent burden. Rent burden is those folks who are uh, paying more than 30% of their income uh, in rent or mortgage costs. Notice Ward 8 is at the bottom. Ward 7 and 8 are at the bottom. The four lines there at the bottom. The rent burden is increasing in wards 7 and 8. 
down there at the bottom, some 63, 64% of Ward 8 residents are under this kind of rent burden, this kind of rent stress. In other words, aren't able to afford the rent that is paid in this city. And these challenges, beloved, are not shrinking. They're growing. Washington, D.C. is the city with the highest percentage of gentrifying neighborhoods in the country between 2000 and 2013. Some 20,000 African-American residents in that period have been displaced from their homes. Here's a funny thing, funny like weird, funny like na-ha-ha, but the fair market rent for a two-bedroom apartment in Washington, D.C. is $1,793. That's supposed to be the fair rental price for a place in D.C. Now, you look at that number, most of us are like, ooh, yeah, that, that's high, right? But you know what? You can't find a two-bedroom apartment of any size for that amount in Washington, D.C. So they ought to call it the fairy market rental <laughs> because it's fictional. According to the National Low-Income Housing Coalition, to afford a two-bedroom apartment at the fair market rate of $1,793 a month, this is what you would have to do. You would be required to work full-time for 52 weeks, earning $34.48 an hour. That's an annual salary of $71,000 a year, but the median in Ward 8 is If you make minimum wage of $13.25 an hour, and this is why we ought not get all excited that D.C. has a higher minimum wage than most of the country. If you make minimum wage of $13.25 an hour, it will take you 104 hours a week of work to be able to afford a two-bedroom apartment at the fair market rate, which really doesn't exist. Meanwhile, public housing stock has decreased by 4,000 units. There are only 8,000 total public housing units in a city with over 700,000 people, 20% of whom are below the poverty line. So in other words, there are 8,000 units available for about 140,000 people who need them. Between 2002, 2012, the number, get this, the number of low-cost units in D.C., dropped by more than 50%, while the number of expensive units rose by 155%. This is just a statistical picture, and the same applies to food security. Not much better there. I'll give you a few more stats. Poverty rate for African Americans in D.C. is about 27.9%, compared to 7.9% for white residents. Of the 49 full-service grocery stores in D.C., Only three are located in Ward 7 and 8. Ward 6 has at least 10. The majority of food deserts are located right here in Ward 7 and 8. Food desert is you have to be able to get to um, a grocery store within about half a mile. Um, And it's a community where most people don't have cars, which makes getting to the grocery store hard. And so people are sort of resorting to having to shop at corner stores and eat a lot of takeout and fast food. That's our neighborhood, right? The majority of food deserts in the city are right here in Ward 7 and 8. But Ward 3 has no food deserts. And Ward 2 only has one small one. One in seven D.C. households is struggling with hunger. 
Research tells us that as poverty and unemployment increase and home ownership decreases, so there's an interaction between these things, uh, food security increases. In other words, if you don't own your own home and you're poor, there's a good chance you're also hungry. Beverly Willer of DC Hunger Solutions says this, it is a fact that hunger and poverty go hand in hand. With any increase in poverty, we can expect more hunger, higher rates of diabetes, obesity, behavior problems, and we can go on and on. That's the picture of housing and food insecurity in our Babylon. The question becomes, what are we going to do? And this is the perfect question for all you social justice advocates as well as all you politically conservative folks. Everybody has asked this question and to answer it biblically. The answer I want to suggest is this. As a church, we're going to be the exile community of God that cares for the needs of its own members and produces flourishing for the block. That's the community God has called us to be. We'll either obey that or we will disobey that. We cannot answer that question by saying we're going to, we're going to uh, sort of take care or we're going to leave this to individuals to figure out for themselves and practice survival of the fittest. That's otherwise known as lovelessness. And we cannot answer that question by saying we'll take care of each other as a church, but we won't work for the flourishing of the community. That's also known as selfishness. Nor can we answer that question by saying, well, we'll serve the needs of the community, but we won't worry about our brothers and sisters in the church. That's family abandonment. Our answer can only be the answer found in Galatians 6.10. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household, the faith. That's the attitude and the ethic that blesses the block and the church. So what does this mean practically? Well, I don't know all the answers. I don't know many answers. But here's what I would suggest. We have to organize ourselves to actually build houses and live in them and to actually plant gardens and eat from them. In other words, I don't think we're meant to take verse 5 and spiritualize it into some sort of ethereal sort of spiritual principle. I think we're meant to obey it, to apply it. Here's what I would love to see. I'll invite you to a conversation about this. I, I would love to see us develop, for each of the seven things in Jeremiah 29, what I'll call a PSA team. Somebody more clever and better with names, you can rename it if you want to. I ain't stuck on the name. But a pray, study, act team. Teams for each of those seven areas that has those three responsibilities, to to pray about matters in that area, to study the matters in that area, and to develop for us as a church action plans to get involved um, for the flourishing of our church family and of our community in that area. Teams would be devoted to prayer because that's a biblical command. And because as exiles, we live in dependence on God, don't we? The point of our exiles is to have our hearts turned back to him in faith. And so we don't, we don't need to do anything without prayer. But then we need to know more than we know. 
Some of y'all are, are experts vocationally in some of these areas, housing and food security issues. Most of us, we just taking care of our families, going about our day-to-day as exiles. So we all need to have on our agenda growing in knowledge and understanding. So the teams would be devoted to study because few of us are experts in these things. But, but we are all disciples, and the, the word disciple itself is connected to the idea of student. So if we're going to be disciples serving Christ on these issues, we've got to be students who learn Christ and learn the issues. Number three, teams would be devoted to action because faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. And literally, we have neighbors all around us and some members who are fighting off the slow death of homelessness and hunger. So we need to be committed to action. So we should have, we would have these seven teams. First two teams that we talked about today from the text are a housing and a gardening team. The housing team would would have basically this charge to pray, study, and act to foster home ownership and housing security for all the members of ARC. And to pray, study, and act to foster Home ownership and housing security for all the members of Southeast D.C., the larger community. It's also the only way I know to sort of stay off gentrification. Is if we own it and keep it and invest in it. So that team then would have to ask itself some questions. This is just a sample. Do we need to form a CDC? Do we need a community development corporation? Do we need to buy property ourselves and preserve it for low-income renters? Do we buy a church building or do we buy an apartment building? Right? Do, do we need to develop? Do we need to develop a home buying program or a co-op for ARC members? So that we're working together to get all of us owning. Do do we need to create a resource and referral strategy to to make sure people take advantage of what's already out there in the way of housing resources and so on? Do Do we need to join the advocacy efforts of other organizations in our community to bring to bear pressure on politicians to 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 do the right thing for our neighbors? Those are the kinds of things that that housing team would need to think about and many, many others. And the the, the planting team, the the gardening team would would, would have this similar charge to pray, study, and act to foster food security for all the members of ARC. None of us should be hungry, according to the New Testament, because we should be sharing. And do we pray, study, and act to foster food security for um, poor households in, in our neighborhood? And they've got to ask some questions. Do we need to address the food desert situation in Ward 8? Do we need to organize a co-op or join a co-op? I mentioned last week the uh, Church Forsaken by Jonathan Brooks. It's in the Inglewood neighborhood of of south side of Chicago. And and one of the stories he tells is the story of his church getting involved in bringing fresh vegetables to the community. Sort of having this sort of in their church building, this sort of periodic kind of food vegetable co-op where they would go to uh, community, uh, community farms, community gardens, um, buy the produce, bring it back to their neighborhoods, and, and folks who uh, paid into that co-op can come and get vegetables. And in time, that grew into a little market. 
And in time, that began to make the case for the investment of a Whole Foods or Trader Joe's. I forget which one. I don't go to either one of them. Whole Foods uh, to come to the neighborhood. So can we envision not despising the day of small things and beginning with something simple like a co-op for fresh vegetables and see that grow into a larger blessing of the Lord for the, for the whole neighborhood. That, that team would have to think about those questions. Do we, do we need to have a volunteer drive for some of the community gardens that already exist? I don't think we've talked about that since Miss Connie Brown left. Miss Connie used to invite folks to join her in one of the community gardens that, that she participates in. What can we do to bring more awareness to the community about gardening and planting and harvesting in Southeast? Or what can we do to bring more awareness to the church and to the community about agencies that already exist and are serving in some way in these areas? It's not all down to us. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray about where your passion lies. Ask the Lord to burden you more than he has ever burdened you in your spiritual life. For a issue in Jeremiah 29, 4 to 11. Then I want you to ask the Lord to give you grace to pray, study, and act with others in the church to do something about it. I want to encourage, I can't require this. This isn't in the Bible. It's not a biblical requirement. So don't go away talking about Pastor T, legalists, and all that kind of stuff. I'm just trusting that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life, and you can prove that he ain't by disobeying this, okay? But, 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 so so this, is, this, is, this is what I want you to do. I want you to pray and, and ask the Lord to burden you, and I, I would love to see us have these seven teams and every member in this church in at least one of those teams, actively praying together, studying together, and then taking action on the kinds of issues here that God says he wants his exile community to be involved in. It will be for our flourishing, and it's going to be how we bless the block. So let's wrap up. Here's the thing about being exiles. God has plans to use us in the place of our exile. God has plans to use you, beloved, And that that needs to be an article of faith for us, individually and collectively, that God is at work in our lives and God is going to use us to make his son known and to make his goodness known. I love the way Phil Riken puts this in his commentary on Jeremiah and Lamentations. He writes, Nebuchadnezzar did not take them to Babylon. God sent them there. The exiles were not captives. They were missionaries. God wanted his people to love the city, not leave it. And I think that's still true. And so just get before the Lord, ask the Lord, where do you want me to be? And with whom do you want me to do this work? And how do you want to change me? And give me a burden for something unlike any burden I've ever felt before. And ask the Lord, If he would have you plant your life right here with us, with ARC, 
for the long haul for the blessing of the block. God's here. He wants his people to be here. And he wants us to be producers and builders so that we might flourish. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the mission that you've given us as a church. We thank you for how you have called us from non-existence into existence. And how you have sustained us for these five years by your grace. And we come to you, Lord, humbly confessing that we feel like we're just getting started. We, we have so much to do. So many things we want to see you accomplish through us and in us. And a, and a beautiful community here that needs gospel, grace, and and lavish goodness from you. And we are humbled that you have chosen to show your goodness through us. So make us zealous for good works and, and help us to do the good works you've called us to so that men may praise you, our Father in heaven, so that Christ would be treasured. And so that the things that rack our community would be reversed and overcome. Not principally by an act of the city council, though we pray that you would cause righteousness to reign there, but that, Lord, things would be reversed and revival would come because you've poured out your spirit on your people and on the community and you have raised us from death to life and you have caused us to flourish in the, in the, in the spirit and to flourish, oh Lord, in the goodness of the gospel. And that just washes over the, the banks of the church and, and washes over the community. We want the community to change without anyone having to leave it. We want the people to hear to have an equitable, fair share in your blessings poured out on this city. And we want to be used by you to help that in some way. So teach us to pray, teach us to study, teach us to put our faith into action so that you're glorified and so that your church is flourishing and so that the community, O oh Lord, flourishes too. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.